Welcome to the Zane Batla podcast. If you know me, you know I'm a person who loves conversations, whether it's about passions or ideas or current events. If you don't know me personally, then maybe you'll figure out that I'm not really a subject matter expert in anything, but I do consider myself a person who knows a little bit about a lot of things. I want to take you on this journey with me of continuing to learn. In the beginning, I'm going to be bringing guests within my network. And as a Muslim American, a lot of people will be coming from that community. I hope that you continue to join me on this journey, and I want to thank you for listening. Jihad, welcome. Thank you for having me. I just realized now you can quote me saying, Jihad, welcome. So now the YouTube and TikTok algorithms, oh, yeah. they're... They're not going to work in my favor, unfortunately. You're, done. you're getting I'm shadow done. banned 100%. Getting shadow banned. You're going to have to put... Is there like a watermelon equivalent for jihad that you could add to the... Maybe. Like a... Because the watermelon symbol is kind of the... the What's the word? Scapegoat for the Palestinian yeah, flag? Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe scapegoat's not the That's word. not the word, but it's okay. We'll... I'm sure with the jihad, though, there's been instances, stories in your life as maybe experiencing with non-Muslims in particular mm-hmm. where... They said, hey, your name's Jihad, what's going on? Yeah, it's so funny. So I feel like consistently the problems that I've had were with track coaches, plural. <laughs> so like the uh, one time in eighth grade, like I was in the hallway, my track coach is also my teacher, both of them. And my friend like called my name down the hallway and he's like, Jihad, and my track coach like slapped him. and was like, oh my God, cut that out. Don't say that that loud. Um, and he came and apologized to me afterwards. But then in high school, my physics teacher was also my track coach. And this guy was just a jerk. Um, I, mean, I don't know. Like, I feel like there was a lot of things that we just let slide because my school was like predominantly white. But there was a lot of like very small schools. So it was a public school, but there was only yeah. like 90 kids in my graduating class. And maybe 10 of them were Palestinian. Right. So percentage wise, it was like a pretty yeah. sizable percentage. Um, and he was just a jerk. And the one time we were like, I don't know, I asked a question in physics class or something. And it was something that he had just said and I wasn't paying attention. And he was like, Eshmael. And I was like, what, what, what's, I just, I'm just asking a question. And he was like, nah, Eshmael, like you're, you're messed up. Your name is Jihad, right? And I'm like, yeah. And he was like, I'm going to turn the whole Middle East into a parking lot if you ask that question one more time. I was like. I was just shocked. He just got away with it because I was just, everybody starts cracking up. Even the Palestinian kids in the class are dying. So I was like, what am I supposed to say to this? So yeah, that was, I feel like there were, there were instances in time where people just let loose yeah. with whatever it is that they wanted to say. But I think since then, it's been pretty chill. Yeah, I mean, I think the word jihad definitely post 9-11 mm-hmm. more so. And then maybe for 10 to 15 years after. Because you're... 1998, 1999? 99, yeah. yeah. So you were like two, three years old when yeah. 9-11 even happened. So for the next 10, 15 years, jihad was, you know, a huge buzzword right. for, oh, ISIS jihad, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Al-Qaeda jihad. But when maybe within the past five years, it's the, the hype behind the word jihad kind of died down. It's definitely died down. I mean, the last two months, it's picked up maybe a little bit. Very true. Um, but yeah, like, I, I was named after my grandpa. Oh. So I don't think my parents would have named me jihad had I been born two years later. <laughs> um, but you know, alhamdulillah, I actually, like, lo- love the name. And overall, I haven't had as many issues as I think a lot of people assume. But there's just, like, little microaggressions, we'll call them, that in my childhood existed. I think went away, like, once I went to college. And post-college now, 
like in the last like year or so have picked up a little bit more but it is what it is kind of i mean yeah if you think about it from a islamic standpoint mm -hmm. the word jihad there's so much beauty behind it mm -hmm. and the way the mainstream media the non-muslim media has essentially utilized the put such negative undertones behind the word yeah that you know when we hear it we're just like okay cool jihad yeah. right but when you realize a non-muslim even uh if they're not white as long as they're not muslim and they hear the word jihad they may get a little thrown off yeah it's like a learning opportunity too. Like at any time somebody, there's a lot of people who won't make a joke about it, but they'll just ask. They'll be like, Jihad, like I've known you for a while. Like your name is Jihad. I've only ever heard it in this other context. Like why is that your name? Like what does that mean? Um, and that's been like a really cool learning opportunity for them, but also like a forcing function for me to have to learn about like not just what Jihad means, but like mm -hmm. Islam in general. Because I feel like people take that opportunity to ask me questions far more often as a result of that being my name than if I had like, you know, a more generic Arabic name where, you know, that, that just doesn't come up in conversation as cleanly, right? So alhamdulillah, like I think it's been a really solid like means of learning for me and for others. Um, but that's the, I, I would say that's the majority of cases for sure and the majority of interactions. I know several people who their name's Muhammad, yeah. but they'll shorten it to Mo, mm -hmm. or their name's something else, Arabic, um, but they'll shorten it or find a mispronunciation for it yeah. to allow the non-Muslims to have a bit, bit more comfort or ability to uh, pronounce the word and not right. sound super auto. But with you, it seems like you still go by jihad, you don't yeah. care. I'm sure there was a point where you were using J or using... I think it's funny because I think it's the opposite. I've always introduced myself as Jihad and it's my family that will like affectionately call me J just as like the, because what other short nickname, like what is the what is the cutesy Arabic version of Jihad? There isn't yeah. one, right? Um, so I've always introduced myself like pretty consistently as Jihad and I think as a result, people have been forced to like either just completely ignore it and just say, okay, we're going to move or like ask directly, like, why is that your name? If it's something that is like, they do not understand or is bugging them. But like you said, like Muhammad, you could argue has the same Islamic connotation, if not more so, but it's such a common name relatively that I feel like people aren't going to ask. Right. Right. Um, and you could, like you said, shorten it to most, shorten it to this, so whatever it might be. So yeah, it's been a it has been my own jihad, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> struggling with that. Um, but no, alhamdulillah, it's been really nice. I wrote my college essay, like, my, to get into college about my name. That was, oh, like, really? I milked that so hard. It was, like, a mix of, like, my name and Spongebob. It's fantastic. Spongebob? Yeah. What do you mean you mix was, Spongebob in there? You remember that Spongebob episode where, uh, like, all the guys, you, you, like, you know Spongebob, right? I've, I, we didn't have cable growing up, okay. but we did rent. Nickelodeon okay. uh, Spongebob on DVD okay. so I've seen a good amount of episodes but maybe I'll, so there's maybe this, the viewers will understand there's you. this one Spongebob episode I forget the context but there's a scene where like there's a bunch of little Spongebobs running around in his head oh it's it's oh. Uh, the fine dining and breathing episode um, where he like can't remember anything except for yeah. fine dining and breathing and he forgets his own name yeah. and then all the little Spongebobs are running around in his head um, trying to figure out his name. It was the one empty or mine. Yes, yep, yes, yep, yes, yep. yes. I remember that one. So I somehow tied that scene in with a discussion of 
the meaning of jihad and it got me wow. into school so you basically said in the essay empty your mind on the word jihad on like the the implicit the bias that wow. comes with yeah yeah that's a that was a banger i'm not gonna i lie. mean i didn't even, <laughs> i didn't even read it and it, the concept the way you tied it in it already sounds like a banger um what did you do in college economics economics okay yeah. i mean i I went in thinking I was going to do a bunch of things, right? Like I thought I was going to go to law school or like took the LSAT and went through that whole thing. I thought I was going to get my PhD at one point. Um, But I think it's one of those things where like you, you realize you see something as a hobby and you never see it as like, oh, this could actually be my job. And I feel like growing up, I was like very tech interested, but I was always just playing with it. I never said like, oh, I wanted to be an engineer. Oh, I wanted to work in tech or... I wanted to be a CEO or whatever it may be. I was just saying, like, this is cool. This is something that I do on the side. Like, I taught myself how to code. I was building websites. I was doing whatever. Um, and then I got to college, and there was a bunch of, like, student orgs related to that stuff. And I joined them all. And I was like, this is this is my fun on the side, but my classwork is going to be, you know, economics. And then by my junior year, I realized, like, there's absolutely no reason that I should be differentiating these things, especially considering that it's not, like, the hobby that I had was, I don't know, jump rope. You know, like I couldn't, like I could make a legitimate career out of this, like very easily, and very, it was in a very straightforward manner. Um, so that's sort of the. There's a there was a lot of winding pathways, but that was sort of the path that I took. Some some may argue you could make a career out of jump roping. Just just ask Corbin Blue. <laughs> Keep your head in the game. Keep your head in the game, bro. No, that's that's high school musical. His was uh push it, push it. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. So he made it he made a career out of that. So but it's good that you were able to, you know, major in economics, learn I don't know if you look back and think think that, oh cool, I learned so much about economics. Because when it comes to economics, so much of it is very theoretical. Yeah. And it's just like, okay, the Laffer's theory or, uh, you know, different yeah. different economic theories. But it's just because everything is so theoretical, it's hard to apply it to a corporate job, for example, which is 100%. what most people uh, go for after undergrad. Or even if you're trying to become, uh, you know, a doctor, lawyer, anything else after that, it's like unless you're going to become an econ- economist, yeah. you're economist economist yeah yeah yeah. it sounded right in my head um (laughs) unless you're gonna that's what you're gonna become the economy degree economics degree you know what i'm trying yes it's useless you don't need to know the name of it exactly no but i think so at northwestern at least we didn't have an undergraduate business program so anybody that was doing anything business adjacent was either exploring something totally different than just you know i'm going to do art history and i'm going to apply for consulting jobs um, or they were doing economics if they wanted it to be like somewhat relevant, right? So it was the biggest major at the university because it was sort of this catch-all for people that wanted to do anything business-related. Um, and I think, like I said, those like clubs that I was joining, so there's this one program that I got involved with like freshman year called Launch, and it was Launch. basically an undergraduate-run um, startup incubator. So it was like run by undergrads and then you would apply to the program and you and like your team would have to start a startup and pitch it by the end of the quarter and like show your traction and show like there were investors there that weren't investing, but they were judging. It was like Shark Tank style. Oh, wow. It was like really cool. Um, and most of the ideas and that people came up with were booty. Like <laughs> some like every year 
I ran it my sophomore year and every year somebody would come and say like, oh, we're going to start like a late night restaurant on campus like every single time. Right. And it would fail every single time. But it was just an opportunity for people to like come in and say, okay, I'm not learning how to run or start a business in the classroom. So let's get hands on experience. And then our job as the people running the club, we're like, how do we put together a curriculum to like facilitate that learning? Right. So we're not going to teach you maybe how to like like financially model your business, yeah. right? But we will teach you like, okay, how do you iterate on your idea? How do you talk to customers so that you don't bias them, but you're able to get like legitimate feedback from them? Um, how do you think about like building and growing a team, right? And it's so funny because in hindsight, like I didn't know any of these things, right? right. So I was going and like learning from other people and I had the same experience as all these other students. And then the next year I would run it back and like teach what I do. But it was a really cool experience in that regard, and I think led to a lot of what I ended up doing um, that I wasn't going to learn in the classroom. It seems that most of the skills that people need for business or for startups or just coming up with some sort of business idea, a lot of it just has to go with just doing it and figuring it out Mm -hmm. because a classroom can only teach you so much and until you actually apply those skills or develop those skills by actually doing it um you're eventually not you're you're not going to pick it up essentially just learning concepts yeah um and i think another thing that i've always thought about is is there a limit or a barrier to the maximum amount of innovation right or are we plateauing in innovation and the reason i bring that up right is because you think about all the innovations within the beginning of the information age, essentially, right. right? That how much the internet has exploded, you know, the internet is in your pocket now and, mm-hmm. you know, you're able to take high resolution photos, the same quality of a DSLR essentially yeah. through your, through your phone. What's next essentially for technology? Um, because, and even if what is next for technology is AI, for example, which that's what all the directions are pointing to. It almost makes me wonder, like, at what point is technology essentially going to plateau, if that makes sense? I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it already has. Um, this is a really interesting question, because I think you, you could look at it from two angles, right? So on one hand, you have, like, these technological leaps, right? So you have the internet, you know, that started in, like, the 80s and 90s, got commercialized throughout the 90s, social media popped in like the early 2000s, and now it's like the technology isn't changing. It's just more and more methods of commercialization to solve like very specific and more and more specific problems um, for various markets, right? And I think we see that with basically every technological leap. We're seeing that now with AI, where 10 years ago, like we had a lot of very solid like broad AI tech, but it wasn't commercialized. And only right. in the last like two years have we seen ChatGPT. And now you see like tons of use cases popping up for very specific niches, all using the same underlying technology. And that's not to say that there isn't like a very long way to go on like the AI front as well, right? But it sort of follows the same pattern where there's the the leap, the step, and then there's this iteration that happens over the course of many years. And I feel like that iterative process is happening faster and faster and faster now. So once the leap happens, you're basically commercializing that tech within five yeah. years because of the scale 
at which you're able to distribute any new developments or any new business that you have worldwide. Um, I think what's really interesting now is that people are seeing this new technology and realizing that even though we're able to iterate at the scale or at scales that like we were never able to iterate at before and like distribute this technology to more and more people at a speed that we weren't able to before, the problems that they're solving are not fundamental to survival as humans, right? Mm -hmm. Like electricity was a very different technological leap than AI, right? Like we could right. all live without AI, um, even if it's making our lives like significantly easier right now, it's really just like introducing more leisure and removing like more necessity for work. But it with like electricity, for example, you could argue that people were obviously living before electricity, but it is leaps and bounds creating like more of a, what is the word I'm looking for? Like a wedge in our lives in the, the necessity that it brings, right? So I think that's really this like question of like, is technology accelerating or is technology like, is progress still being made? Yes, progress is still being made, but we've yeah. reached this plateau of like necessity. If all technological development stopped tomorrow, obviously that would have downstream effects on the economy and things would get really bad. Yeah. But like in theory, everybody would be fine, right? Like we have enough here to like live very happy lives and right. lifespans and healthcare and all of all those things pretty easy. Right, because right now the most commercialized form of technology is phones, iPhone, Android, right. whatever the phone is. And it seems that each year the iPhone comes out. In the beginning of the iPhone, it's, oh, there were so many revolutionary additions. Mm -hmm. You had Siri, you had Touch ID, you had Face ID, you mm -hmm. had all these, wow, this is crazy innovation. And then now it seems like every year it's better battery, better camera, Papa John's. Like yeah. it's just, <laughs> it, it's just, that's, that's it. That's all they, yeah. that's all they got. So it, it almost makes me wonder that, okay, maybe the phone has reached its limitation of, or is slowly reaching that limit. And then that's maybe why Apple and all these other companies are moving more towards AI or moving right. more towards virtual and augmented reality. And that's why there's this huge push on why Apple's pouring so much money into this Vision Pro, hoping that it succeeds. And I think there's a big question there is like, so there's this philosophy in, in Silicon Valley that's become popularized called like effective accelerationism or accelerationism. Um, basically the argument that like any technological progress is good progress. And like, even if some of the things that we end up building are bad, we should just like progress as quickly as possible and on like on net that will benefit humanity, right? And I think, I personally disagree with that because we are now at a point where maybe 200 years ago that philosophy like was effective, but now because of the nature of the technology that we're building, it is not just like assumed that all technological yeah. progress is good, right? Right. Like they're just doing it for shits and giggles now. They're just now. doing it for shits and giggles and they're doing it because like the business models of like the the financiers in America rely on that right like you need the new paradigm to come in so all the vcs can spill money into it and like they can get their fees and like the cycle continues right and that's why every year you seem to see like a new like thesis that like is buzzing that year and all these companies pop up and 99 percent of them all end up failing like it's because the the venture capital community and the investment community more broadly needs a new narrative to invest in or else their business models don't make sense right so I think we're now at this point where we need to think a little bit more critically about like, okay, what is it that we should be building and why? A really good example of this is 
I think the guy's name is Brian Johnson. Um, but he's this like tech billionaire that has now dedicated his entire life the to longevity like, guy? longevity. Guy. Okay, yeah. yes, yes, yes. But like, it's weird, right? Like the guy's doing everything from putting like scans on his penis to like, you know, trying to figure out how, what the best combination of food every day is to eat. Like he's no longer living a life for the sake of happiness or like yeah. goodness. He's living a life just to see how long he can make it last, right? And you could argue that he's making the sacrifice so that like a lot of these discoveries can be commercialized so that you and I could live longer. Right. And then the question is like, if the average American lifespan is 75 years, you know, maybe we want to bump it up to 80 or 85 or even 90. But like, should our goal be 200 years of living? Like, yeah, maybe not, right? I think it just depends on, is your quality of life still going to be good at that point? Because there's some people who, even in their 60s, their health just deteriorates and dwindles so much mm -hmm. that I don't want to say it's like, what's the point of living? But it's just, there's people who are in their 70s and 80s who their health outcomes are just way better than right. people in their 60s and 50s because they've had the proper nourishment, they've had the proper exercise, they've done all the things right in order to, you know, not just have longevity of life, but longevity of the quality. But my issue with Brian Johnson is I saw his routine mm -hmm. one of one day I just stumbled upon his video I think he was he, he's like a co-founder of Venmo or a co-founder like of that. Like, some some yeah. some Venmo adjacent something. company yeah. yeah so I saw his routine and he just wakes up at four or five in the morning every day and that's already a no for me <laughs> right and then he shines this light on his face for mm -hmm. 30 minutes and then he has like 40 pills in the morning that yeah. all have different vitamins. And I'm just like, bro, at what point do you argue that, hey, maybe my actual health uh, or my standard of quality of life in mm -hmm. terms of health is better, but are you actually enjoying your life? Maybe you have the right. energy and maybe you have the ability to, uh, I guess maybe you're 80 years old and still able to run like a 50 year old. Mm -hmm. But at that point, it's like, if you're sacrificing so much of what there is in life in terms of, you know, eat, just eating a simple meal that you enjoy, maybe he enjoys it, who knows. Right. But for me, I see his diet and I'm like, bro, come on. Yeah, this this can't sad. be it. Yeah, this can't be it. But for him, it seems like he's dedicated to it. Yeah. I think, again, like he's making the argument that he's, you know, toughened through it because each of these discoveries could then be, you know, productized and then you won't have to go through all of the struggles that he's going through to figure out what the ideal, you know, combination of supplements and food and protocols is for the oh. day. You could just do what he discovered was best, right? I still would argue that's unnecessary <laughs> to, to the 10th degree. He's dying for all our sins. Yeah, he's... <laughs> Brian Jesus. <laughs> Basically. Um, but yeah, I think there is this really weird push towards just like we should progress everything. And there are very few people that are sitting down and saying like, why are we doing this? Right. And again, there's a different question of, so you see like a, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, but there's like a, <laughs> a smaller version of this happening in AI right now, right? Uh -huh. Where you have like the AI accelerationists who are just like, we need to reach 
artificial general intelligence as quickly as possible. We don't care if it's going to end the world. Like we just need to like get there, right? And then there's some people that are like the AI safety people that are like, whoa, 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 slow down. We shouldn't even be writing one more line of code until yeah. you know we figure out what is going on here. And then there's a lot of gradients in the middle, right? Um, and I don't think we should all be, you know, AI safety doomers who are like, we shouldn't do anything until we figure out exactly what's going right. on. But we probably shouldn't be on the complete opposite end of the spectrum either. Um, and there's very little, you know, moderate discussion as to what is the best way that we can continue to move forward while still doing so intelligently. And I think the incentives just aren't lined up for anybody to be thinking that way. I honestly feel like we're getting to a point where we're slowly trying to progress AI more and more and seeing what its capabilities are without a focus on what limits we should put on it. Mm -hmm. Because once we get to a point where we develop an AI that has emotions, human type emotions, or has intelligence that exceeds our own intelligence, that's when the real issues start. And it slowly seems like every post-apocalyptic movie or Black Mirror episode, it's slowly becoming a reality, which is very scary. Yeah. There's, there's two threads I kind of want to pull on here because A, I think like AI is just a good case study for this broader conversation that we're having around tech progress, but it's not like the only area where like this is an issue, right? Um, but on one hand, you have in AI, you have this like differentiation between intelligence and consciousness. And I think what people are realizing now is that, you know, something like ChatGPT, it's obviously very intelligent. You can make the argument that it's in, more intelligent than a lot of humans already, right? Wow. But it is not conscious, right? Like it doesn't have emotions. It doesn't like, it is, it is quite literally a computer that is just jumbling words and then spitting out an answer, right? Um, and that has a lot of impact now on the way that, you know, psychologists and neuroscientists are like examining the brain to say like, okay, if that's the way that AI works, like an LLM works, and that is the output that we're getting. LLM? L large language model, which okay. is like what ChatGPT and that's the technology it's built it. on. Um, we're making the assumption that's not the way the brain works. So there must be something else that the brain is doing, right? So on one hand, you're seeing that conversation inform you know, other fields of study to the point where some people are saying we're never going to reach artificial general intelligence this has actually just opened our eyes to the fact that there is like this differentiation and we should be exploring consciousness more and less intelligence, right? On the other hand though, there's always, there's always on the other yeah, hand. There's always on the other hand. We start getting into these questions of like, okay, if intelligence can be, you know, a com like if a computer can be more intelligent than a human, what does that mean for us, right? And there was this really interesting conversation that I had. So a friend of mine, Fardim, uh, built this app called Hadith GPT. Or, oh, I've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, I've yeah, heard yeah. of it, yeah. And it was like you could ask it any question and it would cite like the Quran and Hadith to like answer the question for you from an Islamic perspective, right? And it went viral on Twitter and like hella people were asking the same questions like, you know, is it halal to have a girlfriend outside of the context of marriage? <laughs> um, but it's this one um, like sheikh who knew Fardim like hit him up and was like, yo, you should like take this down. Um, not even, you know, there's a question of like, it might be giving wrong answers. And, you know, that's your responsibility as the person who built the tool. But also, like Islamically, we have this tradition of 
learning from humans, right? And like learning from other Muslims specifically. So how do we reconcile the tools that are now available to us with this like tradition of like human to human learning and education? Um, like there's these really, really big questions that I think we're completely ignoring by just saying, okay, we're gonna continue to build until we reach AGI, right? Because then we get there and we're like, wait a second, like yeah. all of this progress was made and we have absolutely no idea how to grapple with any of this from a, from a personal, from a societal and from a spiritual level, right? So I think that all comes back to the initial conversation of like progress is being made, but to what end? And yeah. I think we're at this point now where like more thought needs to be. You've brought you've brought Islam into the conversation, mm -hmm. and there there's a uh, restaurant that I went to in Bridgeview area. Okay. And I kid you not, they have a VR headset. Uh, one of those VR, not just the headset, but the the chair, and it adds the uh, when you're traveling, it mm -hmm. adds the effects of you moving. And I thought, huh, I wonder what this VR headset uh, is going to what the experience is going to be. Yeah. I kid you not, it was a tour of Al-Haram. So you could perform Umrah and Hajj, That's crazy. essentially on VR. You could visit Medina, the Prophet's mosque. Mm -hmm. And this is the third one. You can go on Isra and Miraj <laughs> on <laughs> VR. So it's like, okay, there's clearly someone out there, probably with good intention, yeah. that, hey, I'm gonna implement AI with uh, Islam building this mm -hmm. Hadith GP, GPT or you know going on Isra and Miraj and VR maybe it's good intention right. I didn't do it so I don't know what's in it yeah. nor can I validate uh, whether it was Islamically accurate or not if I actually did it but it was just still kind of mind-blowing to me that wow we've come to a point where maybe people <laughs> won't even go to Hajj anymore. I mean, I hope people still do, but they just put on a VR headset and then they're like, you know what? I already did Hajj or even just travel in general. Yeah. Uh, uh, Islam aside, like maybe they want to see the Eiffel Tower. Just put on a VR headset. All right. I saw the Eiffel Tower. I experienced it. And as VR becomes more and more real and it seems more real, maybe people will just stay in their home, stay in a little pod. Yeah. The whole time. Have you seen Wally? I have seen Wally. Yeah, it's just like everybody's Maybe just gonna, gonna be, be Wally. Yeah. living on Wally. Everybody's you know just sitting on a little chair in space because the Earth is uninhabitable, yeah. and you just got these headsets on. It's so interesting because I think everybody would agree that like we shouldn't be in that world, right? But every technological development that we've discussed today sort of nudges us closer to that world, right? Which brings us to the question of like, why aren't people like more intentionally thinking about the way that these technologies like evolve? Um, but it also brings us to the question of like, okay, going back to the question of like Islam, right? And like, this is true for every religion, no matter what, like, no matter what your belief system is, you have to evaluate the things that you're using and the work that you're doing based off of that belief system, right? And in the case of Islam, it's like, how do we grapple with like not being Luddites and saying like, we don't want anything to do with all this newfangled technology that is coming up with also being like very intentional about like, what is an Islamic perspective on X that is going to lead us to be, you know, responsible and productive with the technology that we're developing, but actually like 
leave some progress on the table because we don't think that we should be going in that direction. And again, like it doesn't need to just be like an Islamic conversation. I think everybody should be asking that question. Um, but yeah, like there's this understanding that like certain science fiction, you know, futures are going to come to, into fruition if we continue going down this path. And I don't think enough people are talking about that. A really good example of this is like with like generative AI, like you can now create like a picture of anything, right? Or you can, right. you can write an essay like really, really quickly, right? So there's like an abundance of media. You could argue infinite information and infinite media out there today. Um, does that make, you know, handcrafted, human crafted, real media more valuable? And if so, do we actually go into a world where more and more people are going to like not want to be in VR, want to be outside, only like consume things that are handcrafted, like verifiably human. Right. Um, and if all of that is true, like maybe that is our response to have like a more responsible future of like progress with these technologies. I'm just very, um, I don't think I see that trend happening yet, right? As much as yeah. I would like that to be the case. There, there are those <clears throat> small minor movements of people that are going back to flip phones or right. they're setting screen limits on certain applications or deleting social media. So I am starting to see some of that and there are benefits of people, you know, not being on their phone all day. Mm -hmm. um, but it seems like the trend is not heading in that direction. There may be a small minority of people who are actually getting away from technology or putting limits on it. But the vast majority of people are just obsessed with TikTok, scrolling 10 seconds, uh, yeah. going through which video they can find. And it also also seems like that within technology, the three areas of advancements that I'm at least seeing are always focused on these three things. It's either within AI, mm -hmm. it's within VR slash AR, or it's in the crypto and Web3 world. Um, so are all three of those areas mutually exclusive in their advancement or do they kind of have a little bit of crossover? I think I think the reason that you see advancement happening in all three is because they all depend on one another, right? So a really good example is going back to what we were just discussing around like, you know, it, a world of infinite media. Um, there's more value placed on things that are like created by humans. How do you differentiate between something that was made by an AI and something that is like verifiably human? Well, like in a digital world, you need crypto to do that, right? Yeah. Um, because there's no other way to have like a public ledger or a public under, like mutual understanding of, hey, Zane made this image or Zane published this podcast and he's signing off for everybody to see that it was not made by an AI, it was made by him, right? Um, with like VR and AR and like spatial technology, it's like, okay, now you're outside of the confines of any like one corporation or website or database. So you need to better understand like the objects that I'm interacting with in this like virtual world. Like where do they come from? Who are they owned by? Like how are they manifested? And again, like in that world you need crypto for that because you can't have like Meta and Apple owning all of that data um, because then none of these platforms are going to be like interoperable in order to reach like the future that we expect to reach. You need to have like an open database of of ownership that is verifiable by everybody that is using it, right? And then on the AI side, you can make the argument that like, okay, well, in a spatial world where we have a lot of VR and AR, you need things to be like very dynamic and constantly like changing. Yeah. And so you would need AI 
on that end, right? So all of these technologies are like interlocked and like interdependent in a way. Um, and I think the problem that I saw with like crypto and Web3 is that a lot of enthusiasts were saying like, you know, crypto is the future, right? And I mean, like, you could argue that part of that is true, but it is the future because of its use cases in like these other two fields. And like AI is the future because of its use cases alongside these other two developments and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, it, it seems like with crypto, it's all dependent on faith because with our currency, the US currency, fiat, mm -hmm. it's not really backed by anything anymore. At one point it was backed by the gold standard, right? But now as people are losing faith in uh, you know, US currency or just currency mm -hmm. in general, it seems that that's why people are gravitating more towards crypto and they want that decentralization of getting rid of these financial institutions controlling their money and don't want dependency on that. I just want to stop because like, I think that's the big misunderstanding with crypto. Like when I tell people that I work in crypto or work with crypto, people uh -huh. assume like, oh, you're investing, right? Right. Um, and that couldn't be further from the truth, right? So I think there is the world of cryptocurrencies, which was like the first iteration, the first developments of like a blockchain as a technology to say like, hey, we can create a money system that is not dependent on any one bank, right? That is like a legitimate use case that I think works very well in the world of like Bitcoin and the world of like, you know, Ethereum has USDC, which is like this token that is pegged to the US dollar. So I don't need to go through a Western Union or a Chase in order to like transfer money to my family in Palestine. I could just do that instantaneously. Um, that said, though, that was like iteration number one. And then there was all this like scam technology that popped up around it. Safe Moon, you know, like oh, all. Don't tell me about <laughs> Don't bring up Safe Moon around. All me. these tokens that people are investing and still yeah. continue to invest in that's basically just straight gambling. It's based off faith. There's no, yeah. there's nothing there, right? But then that technology was used for, okay, in order to create a money system, we needed to create a way that like people could verifiably understand that I have value and I'm sending that to you. And I'm like subtracting one Bitcoin and adding one Bitcoin to, you yeah. know, Zane's account. And everybody can see that. We don't need a middleman to verify that, right? right? That technology that we call a blockchain is like also useful for all property rights across all of the internet, right? So I have any sort of data. I have an account, let's just say, on yeah. Facebook. I want my Facebook account and all of the data associated with it to come with me when I log into, you know, Twitter. And my entire, you know, follow, like, you know, social network and graph and my follower count and all of that, I want all that data to move with me in a verifiable way without Facebook owning that data, right? Yeah. With crypto, that's possible. But I think people, you hear that word, they immediately think like, oh, we're investing in currencies. Right. But when we say like, oh, crypto and AI and spatial tech are like all these things are dependent on one another. Spatial tech is not dependent on me being able to invest in SafeMoon. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. dependent on like that underlying technology that makes it possible to verify right. like data and transactions on the Internet that can then be used in these other worlds um, that are no longer like owned by any one corporation. And I think that's why within the crypto world, the word crypto, I feel, has you know, not been used as often as now Web3. Yeah. Um, and I think it's to differentiate from the fact that, oh, and me being someone who just understands crypto on a very high level or 
you know, a very average level of understanding crypto. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, back in 2021 or back in 2018, 2019, yeah. when those spikes in Bitcoin and all these other, um, you know, other coins, um, when those spikes started happening, we started paying attention to it and mm -hmm. saying, oh, this is a good way to make money. But what we don't realize is, oh, there's a very legitimate technology, a use case for this technology that there's this universal ledger that everybody on the internet or everybody that is participating in this ledger recognizes that, hey, once this transaction happens, it's written in history on this ledger that anybody can access. Mm -hmm. And we're all consistently together verifying that this transaction happened. Where that becomes a little skeptical in certain cases is such as with FTX is mm -hmm. what is the legitimacy of that ledger? How do how does everybody agree that you know just because you put a ledger on a website or on I don't even know how you access the ledger. I just yeah. knew on my Coinbase app. Okay, That's I sell buy and sell. But, yeah, right. but how do we verify that? If some new coin comes out, that it's legit, or some new uh, wallet that it's right. legit. And, th and this is the big thing, right? Like these, so the FTXs, the Binance's, the Coinbase's of the world are centralized exchanges, right? They're places where I can give US dollars and receive crypto in return, but they are actually not, outside of the fact that like I am receiving crypto, they are not fully built on a blockchain, right? So all of those right. benefits of using crypto. You don't get by using a centralized exchange. You get by buying on a centralized exchange and then taking those tokens out and putting them into my own wallet that I have custody of, right? And I don't want to get into like the the details of that, but my point is that like with something like FTX, wait, do get into the details. So you're telling me the money in my Coinbase right now is not, not actually mine? No. Wow. Not your what's it's, there's a phrase. It's uh, not your not your keys, not your coins. So like if you don't have the the keys to your wallet and your tokens are not in that wallet, they're not that's Coinbase owns that and basically is just giving you So I do have a Coinbase wallet. Yeah. It, so, so Coinbase I own wallet. I own that. Anything right? in your Coinbase wallet, you own Coin like All they right. have no ability to so, see. So that. I'm good. You're good. You're All chilling. Right. You're chilling. Chill. But FTX did not have an FTX wallet. Okay. Right? FTX everything was owned by the company. It was on their balance sheet, right? And when I went and bought Bitcoin on FTX, I was just they were just giving me an IOU to say like, hey, when you sell it, we'll sell it at this new price based off of what you bought it at. But FTX still owned everything, right? And what FTX was doing is like, you were giving them money to buy Bitcoin. They were taking that money and then investing it on your behalf on the back end and you didn't know that at all. They yeah. lost all the money that people had put into their, you know, uh, their platform. And then when people went to sell, there was nothing to give them. Because they were the the catch that they hooked everybody on FTX was those super high uh, interest rates, right. right? Exactly. Exactly. So in that world, right, it is, you know, crypto in that people were buying and selling tokens, but it's not crypto in that people are using the underlying blockchain technology and like all of its benefits, right? And that's why people started saying, oh, Web3, like you said, to like differentiate these worlds, but there's still like massive confusion. Right. Um, and I think to that point, like any further adoption like what my company does what others are doing is going to have like crypto rails that are sort of abstracted away so people get the benefits of what is happening and you know on a high level what i'm like explaining to be the benefits they're able to reap those 
but you don't know like that it's on Ethereum. You don't know that it's using a blockchain. You don't know that you have a wallet associated with your email account. Like yeah. everything is sort of abstracted away. Otherwise, people are just going to assume that like, oh, it's crypto, it's a scam, it's Satan, right? Those are two like very different things. Yeah. Well, I, I, I do think that when it comes to the average person, unless you take them through a long walkthrough within Web3 or blockchain in general, mm -hmm. they're going to have a very limited understanding and they're just going to think about, oh, yeah, this is just a way for me to invest my money. And even same thing you could say about the stock market. Do mm -hmm. majority of people actually know how the stock market works, how the price changes? Right. So it's like we're just investing our money in blind faith and trying to make up a way that, oh, yeah, I'm very bullish about this investment that I'm making. Mm -hmm. But you don't understand on the back end what's actually happening. And that's where issues like FTX. Um, I don't know if you heard the story about the OneCoin no, I didn't hear about one. You didn't coin. hear about OneCoin? So with OneCoin... Did you make it? I did not make you it. You rugged everybody? No, I, it wasn't me. It was this lady. I forgot her name, but she's in. She's either from Bulgaria or in Bulgaria. Nice. But she was essentially given the name uh, the Crypto Queen. Okay. Like, like people were online were calling her that. Unfortunately, so she, uh, her and another business partner released a coin called OneCoin, and they were basically trying everybody to uh, buy into the mm -hmm. OneCoin. And I don't know how she guaranteed the uh, ability for people to buy in, but the shady thing was is there was no blockchain. She was just saying, hey, uh, buy the OneCoin, and uh, you know it's a good investment. We're going to beat Bitcoin. We're going to do great, right? Mm -hmm. And what it ended up being was the price of the one coin was determined. Basically, she would just go in and change the, the, the price. That's crazy. <laughs> so I don't know what the actual price was at its peak or anything, right? Yeah. But she would literally go on the back end, change the price of one coin herself. And in order to either earn more one coin or maximize your investment, you have to invite other people to invest mm. into one coin. So what ended up happening was is eventually she got caught about $4 billion were invested. Wow. Her partner just got indicted for 20 years in prison, but she's still at large. She's on the FBI top 10 most wanted. Um, That's crazy. It's, it's a crazy story. And uh, essentially it was like a multi-level marketing scheme yeah, because yeah, it's yeah. like, hey, recruit someone to invest in this. But there was just no legitimacy behind the actual coin people weren't actually investing in anything it was yeah. just her pooling the money telling people that their investments were growing and um it's like stories like that stories like ftx where you know there's continuous people trying to pour in their money or investment or uh time and techno technological development into the crypto space and it's almost like Oh, a lot of it is just very hopeful thinking. And this could yeah. be with crypto. This could even be with VR. Like, obviously, there's no physical Apple Vision Pro in my hand right now. So I can't validate whether it's worth $3,500. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people probably already are going to buy it. Right. Um, or even with AI, a lot of people are probably, a lot of VCs are pouring money into AI, not knowing at what extent yeah. can it get to or... Are, are these companies that people are uh, saying, hey, we're an AI startup, 
pour money into it and then it ends up failing? Is it all just a big gamble? And is that why VCs and individuals are going into it? I mean, just to answer that last question, like I think the the business model of VC is built so that like VC is just like legitimized gambling for <laughs> for markets, right? Like I'm saying I'm going to raise $500 million from my VC fund from all of these other rich people who trust me to invest their money. I'm going to invest it into 100 companies. I really only need three of them to hit in order to, you know, make my fund back. But I need three of them to hit big, right? Like I need all of those to be te- like $1 billion or $10 billion companies. And then the other 97 that I invested in can go to zero. I literally don't care, right? Yeah. That is like the model that VCs are working with. And as a result... Every technology that they invest in needs to be like this absolute life-changing, like, oh my God, AI is going to absolutely take over the world. Because if that doesn't happen, they are not going to return their fund, right? Like if not, if every VC doesn't have at least one Uber or one Airbnb or one whatever, they don't make their money back, right? So you end up seeing like a lot of these hype cycles where people are getting really, really excited about a particular technology. And I'm still very like, because I'm working with it on a day-to-day basis and my company is making money as a result of it, right, without investing, that, you know, crypto has, like, legitimacy as a technology, that AI has legitimacy as a technology, that spatial has legitimacy. But there's definitely, like, a massive gap, some more than others, between, like, what people think that level of legitimacy is with, like, what is actually happening. Um, And I think a lot of that is because of the incentives for VCs to, like, build that hype cycle so that they could raise more money so they can collect fees so they can invest more and even if it doesn't work it doesn't matter because they still pay their money so the only thing more valuable than the dollar is hype is hype is what i'm hearing is vibes because hype and vibes determines the 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 price it does it does and that's not just true with crypto right that's true with stocks stocks yeah. exactly right like we saw that with the whole wall street bets thing we see that with companies like private companies today like VC rounds will get super, super inflated. You'll see a company with no product raise at a $100 million valuation because, oh, well, if, if Zane's investing in it, then I have to invest in it and yeah. I'm going to one-up them. And, oh, there's, it went viral on Twitter, so there must be something here and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think we like a lot of our market is just built on hype and vibes more than we would like to believe. And it's just the level of privacy and openness with which we have like, access to that information. It does seem that within crypto or within technology in general, you're pretty involved in it day to day. What kind of things are you working on right now that you would want to shed some light on? Yeah. So I think a lot of what I'm working on is like related to these topics that we're discussing, right? So I used to, a few years ago, a buddy and I started, we'll call it like a creator growth agency. So we worked with big YouTubers between like half a million and 10 million subscribers And we realized that they have a bunch of data on the back end that they just weren't looking at, right? Either because they didn't have the time or they didn't really have the chops to understand how to make that data work for them, right? So we would go in and give them a better understanding of like how they should be titling their videos. What should their thumbnail look like? Like where, how quickly should they be talking? And like, what should the structure of their video actually be? How should they edit it? Like, what should their content calendar look like? If I'm going to post like a vlog on one day, should I post you know, an action video, you know, later that week. Um, 
we basically developed like 15 different analyses, each, each answering, answering different questions like that. And then we would put together like a whole content strategy for that creator. It worked once, like it didn't work for brand new creators because really once when you're fresh, you need to have a better understanding of like what does my audience want to see and like build that initial audience. But for these guys that already had an audience and it was really like a matter of optimizing, we were able to make them tens if not hundreds of thousands of dollars more a year um, just off on YouTube, right? We weren't touching any other platform. So that was really, really cool. We worked with like a few dozen creators in that range. Um, and we saw like the problems firsthand of these guys were only making money, A, if they continued to pump out content and get the algorithm to like them. Right. But they were making a lot of money if they did it right. But they were really, really burned out. And also, like, the platforms that they were posting on had complete control over, like, the type of content that they were putting out, right? So, like, it was our job to basically read the algorithm and say, like, hey, Zane, never interview Jihad again. Like, he did not do well <laughs> on the podcast. Um, you should get more, you know, lawyers on your podcast, right? Those right. guys. That's, like, a very simplistic observation. Um, so... They were basically slaves to the algorithm. And whatever YouTube said they wanted to see, we would tell them, this is what you need to do. And if YouTube decided, hey, like, we're going to change the algorithm and like their videos started to fall out of favor, they were just screwed, right? There was right. nothing that they could really do. They would have to start whole new accounts. Like their entire businesses would just burn to the ground, essentially. Wow. Um, and like when the platforms have that much control, we have like all of these conversations around, you know, the creator economy. People are now able to have like more independence about what they publish and make money off of it, off of their passions. But like that wasn't true given the power that the platforms held over what folks were posting. And it's not just YouTube, that's Instagram, that's Twitter, that's that's everywhere, right? Yeah, I hear um, algorithms kind of the buzzword for in the in the creator space. Right, 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 right. So Around the time that we were wrapping that company up and eventually got acquired, like I was sort of exploring this idea of like what is, how do we solve these problems in the creator economy so that like creators could have like true independence that like when I'm publishing a video, I have full rights to that video that I'm able to monetize it in a lot of different ways, not just through like the ads that YouTube wants to show on it. Um, and YouTube's like one of the best platforms to that, by the way, right? Like Instagram, Twitter, you can't monetize at all unless you're selling a product and, you know, driving traffic towards that. Um, but there's no like creator fund on Twitter or Instagram that is paying creators in that way. So that, those were questions that I was exploring. And then around that time, I discovered uh, this thing called NBA Top Shot. Oh, and, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So it was basically just like these digital trading cards that I later learned were NFTs yep. um, of like NBA plays, like not just players, but like moments, right? So it was like a right. LeBron James dunk on this day. But if it was like a rookie, there was like a certain amount yeah. of them that were available. I, I bought a few. Yeah. And what I did was I bought like a pack, mm -hmm. an unopened pack for like 200 bucks. And then on eBay, you could sell unopened packs for like, a thousand fifteen hundred dollars no so i sold a couple packs and i made some good money off of it but then it got to a point where top shot started realizing that people were doing that mm -hmm. so they put all these limitations and yeah. restrictions and trying to find ways that oh you can't transfer a pack to someone else unless uh uh you know the packs have been opened or unless uh, i mean people found ways to work around it yeah but you know they're gonna crack down and try to maximize as much as 
they exactly. can. But sorry, I no, I no, just no, I'm glad I, I have the familiarity with the Top Shot a little I'm, bit. I'm glad you do. Like that that opens up the conversation a little bit. But I had I was playing with that for a while, and then I was like, what is this? Like, what is it that I'm playing with here? And I started learning more about like NFTs and tokens and all of this stuff. And I was like, this is pretty interesting, at least if nothing else. Um, and at the time, we were working with some basketball YouTubers, and I was like, yo, like. I talked to the community manager over at Top Shot. He's willing to like sponsor your video for $10,000 and give you five packs if you do like a pack opening on your like channel, right? And I was like, I thought it would be a cool opportunity. I'm giving this guy some money, like whatever. Yeah. And he was like, I don't know what you're talking about. This sounds like a scam. I want absolutely nothing to do with this. So I was like, understandable. Um, but I kept going down the rabbit hole myself. And I think what I realized is like a lot of the problems that the creators that we were working with had were being answered not immediately, but potentially by this technology that NBA Top Shot was built on, right? Like, you, if I make my YouTube video an NFT, I now have a built-in monetization method, regardless of what YouTube or Twitter or anybody has to say about it. Um, I have a direct communication with my collectors, right? So if you collect my video, I now have access to like that connection between you outside of the confines of a YouTuber or Twitter, right? Like if YouTube shuts down, I lose all of my subscribers, but the blockchain is never going to shut down, right? So that right. data is now publicly available. Um, and then it was just like, those were the building blocks that you needed. And then it was just a question of like, how do you build an all new creator platform using this like technology that where the user experience right now is trash, right? And I think over the last few years, we've seen a lot of that. Um, there's a company I'm doing some consulting for right now called Zora that basically is like exploring that world, like creating a YouTube alternative that is built on the blockchain where monetization is not just like ad driven, but it's also like I'm able to go and like collect somebody's video and like maybe there's only one of, I got one of 500 editions of this video in the same way that I'm able to collect like a trading card, right? Um, and for my favorite creators, that's really cool because if that creator, you know, becomes very, very popular, I could say, oh, I got a one of 500 edition of Mr. Beast's first video or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. And if that doesn't happen, it's just like, you know, I got to support a creator directly without fees going to one of these big corporations that, like, I don't want them to have my money anyway. So what I'm hearing is I need to put my podcast videos on this um, Zora platform. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I, again, like, the UX still needs to catch up. Like, do a lot of people have crypto wallets so that they can collect? No. Two people even understand what I'm talking about right now and, and no, right? But Zora right now, one of the projects that we're working on is you can collect without having a crypto wallet, right? Like you sign up with your email, you collect, everything happens on the back end. And then once you understand, oh wait, like I have an NFT of this video, you can claim your wallet and like get full control of it. And you know, now all of those opportunities are unlocked for you. But if you just want to support a creator and watch the video, you could also do that. Very so nice. if I'm a individual and I buy a NFT of the video, do then the views that are generated that the people that are just watching, do I get a slice of the earnings of that? Is that how if, that works? If the creator sets it up that way, yes. So by default, no. By default, you're just getting a collectible version of that video. You can assume like you can consider it like I am tipping the creator. He is giving me an autograph in return. And if this creator becomes famous in the future, like I could sell that autograph later, yeah. right? Um, but you could also set it up where, you know, I am tipping the creator or I am investing in this creator's video. 
Um, this creator then posts it on YouTube. He sets it up on the back end so that the YouTube ad revenue is automatically split between all of the collectors, and then I receive a portion of the proceeds. Like that's possible today, but again, very few people are doing it given the UX and like the understanding of what's happening there. There's also like legal implications of like, okay, is this considered a security, and am I actually allowed to do that? Um, but it's possible, and I think we're getting closer and closer to a user experience that is like widely applicable. There are musicians that I've met. Um, you know, Flume. Flume, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So there's like a Flume song um, that is collectible on Zora right now, and like I think people who collected one of the first like 500 editions of it, I think it was ten dollars a piece that they collected it for. And you can now sell that song for like $150, like that version of it. But from the creator's perspective, it's just like if Drake dropped an NFT of like God's plan right now, I would collect the hell out of that for no other reason than like <laughs> I'm not speculating on it. I just want, in the same way that I want merch, I want yeah. that, right? Um, so that's sort of like the world that I'm playing in right now. And it goes back to this conversation previously of like when you have an abundance of media on the internet, nothing is valuable unless it is handmade. So how yeah. do you like verify that something is handmade or like that there's provenance there that I want to pay for this versus that? And I think like this is the world where like all of that starts to make sense where, you know, there's a lot of podcasts in the world. There's a lot of, you know, conversations happening. But if I like want to support Zane, I can collect the Zane Butler podcast. And there's a lot of, you know, opportunity that you can create on top of that. It seems that there's a lot of legitimacy behind it with the blockchain involved with, uh, you know, if I buy a NFT, then there's legitimacy saying that I own this NFT. I think the, the toughest part of the buy-in, especially for the older crowd, is that because it's not something physical or tangible, I can hold in my hand. Because mm -hmm. <clears throat> if I start selling t-shirts tomorrow and someone buys a t-shirt for however much, right? They can say, hey, I physically have this t-shirt, I can wear it. Mm -hmm. But if they buy a NFT of the podcast, right. then they say, what value does this bring to me other than this online source saying that, hey, I own this one out of 500 copy of the podcast. And that's why I think it becomes a lot, like the, there's a generational shift. Like I don't think the, the 40 and up crowd is really gonna buy into this narrative outside of like oh I can make some money off of it like it's stupid but let me do it but it's the kids who like are growing up on Roblox are growing up on Fortnite have like a deep understanding of like the digital world is just as valuable as the physical world as far as like the time that we're spending on it um, like you can imagine a world where like I collect an edition of the the Zane Butler podcast I'm like really going out here now but like there's a, a Roblox room where like you're doing like a live podcast and people are pulling up in Roblox to to watch your wow. to watch your podcast, but you can only get in if you collected an edition before, right? Like because that's all on the blockchain, like it's all interoperable. I can use that across all of these platforms, all of these games, all of these worlds, right? Um, that's a really like you could say like gamey or childish example, but it's like my point is that as the digital world becomes more and more legitimate and we have all these people who have grown up thinking it is legitimate. There's no reason that like me collecting a version of an edition of your podcast is any less cool mm -hmm. and like any less of a flex mm -hmm. than me buying a t-shirt from you, right?
it further legitimizes, I guess, the point I made earlier of AI, virtual reality, and crypto. Those three worlds, they're not mutually exclusive. They're working all together because you're going to be in virtual reality, collecting NFTs from the blockchain, mm -hmm. probably having some implementation of AI within this new reality. Um, but there also comes back to our earlier points of, is this really where we're headed as a civilization, as a society, um, that as yeah. things get worse and worse around us, I honestly think that companies like Apple, companies like Google, they're hoping that the world around us continues to worsen. Mm -hmm. So people are just more glued to their technology, to their phones. I'm sure Facebook, Twitter, Instagram right now with, you know, what's happening in Gaza, they're definitely like, oh yeah, we're going to censor your content, but we still want you to be glued to your phone using our devices so we can get more information on you and sell that data or show you ads. So it's almost like these technology companies are hoping that you stick to virtual reality, you get more push towards AI and the world around you, the physical world, let that continue to deteriorate. I think I'm more hopeful for like this blurring between like physical and digital worlds. Like it's just technology is getting better and we're able to use it no matter where we are and what we're doing. There's, I, I was working with this uh, VC fund that was investing in like digital fashion and they called it fidgetal fashion, like fidget, physical digital. Um, and the example that they gave is there's this company called IYK that basically makes clothes. Um, they're really, really cool. But every like piece of clothing has like a very small chip in it. And that chip can be scanned like, uh, like what's that called? Like Apple the Pay. QR code? Or Not QR code, the, but you know what I'm saying. Like, you I, can, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. NFC. The oh, NFC yeah. chip. Um, so you hold your phone up to it and then it opens up like a digital version of the piece of clothing that you're holding. Um, so you can imagine like I buy a t-shirt at a Drake concert. I like meet Drake. Drake like digitally signs that t-shirt. Now I have like this Drake NFT that I'm able to bring with me into, you know, the this game that I'm like I'm playing 2K and it's like, "Oh, where'd you get that shirt from on my player?" "Oh, well, I went to the Drake concert and I got like there's a digital mirror of the physical thing that I purchased." Um like that's a world that you could just like start to play in, right? Where like you didn't have those digital property rights prior to five years ago, and now you do. How do you begin to connect like the physical and the digital world? So it's not like, oh, I'm fully immersed in this like metaverse experience and ignoring the physical world, but there's a a link between the two so that right. like it's a seamless experience no matter what I'm doing and how I'm interacting. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because I think that even with social media the way it is right now obviously we're not immersed in virtual reality mm -hmm. but how do you find out updates of people or what they're doing it's through social media most of the time before it was word of mouth but now it's oh we realize that this reality that's happening on social media and the real physical world they're intertwined mm -hmm. in a way that what happened on social media you're still this what you said on social media it's the same person that you are in real life and they're the same individual yeah um so it's it's good to see that you know there's still that hope that 
oh, maybe these technology companies want you to be as immersed in their technology as possible. But there are other companies like the one you just mentioned that are making efforts to continue that separation mm -hmm. of, hey, we want you to have a physical reality and a digital reality, but still not make it to the point where you're just solely focused on one. Mm -hmm. Because I think another interesting thing is if there are these few people who boycott essentially the digital reality, then they're going to essentially just be in the physical world while everybody else is in the digital world. And is that even ideal for them? Because they're going to be missing out on uh, what what's happening currently in our reality. Right, right, exactly. And I think like there's certain companies, I mean, I think even in Apple's design of the Vision Pro, right, like if you look at the demo videos, they're arguing for this world where like I could have the headset on so that I can get the full capabilities of what's possible then. But also I'm seeing the real world with like these other things embedded on top of it. Um, and then you can go to like an immersive version of the experience too. But like I think even the hope there is that we're not in this fully digital world. We're just augmenting the experience that we have in the real world. There's this other company, it's this Muslim guy actually that left Apple and started this company called Humane. And they had like the AI pin. I don't know if you saw that recently. Um, but it's basically supposed to be like a phone alternative where you like put the pin on your shirt or on your jacket or whatever it is. And you could talk to the pin and like it'll just do whatever it is that you want. Answer any questions that you want. It's all AI powered. Um, but then also if you need like a screen, you could just snap your fingers and go like this. And wow. it'll like project onto your hand, right? And then you can go like this with your hands. I don't know exactly what the gestures are, but like this is touch instead of like touching a screen, right? Um, very early version of like what the future might be, but I do think we're hitting this world of like, we recognize that people don't wanna be staring at a screen all day. We also recognize that like digital has massive benefits that could be introduced to our lifestyle on a day-to-day -day basis. How do we blend the two and make it like a very seamless experience um, like in our day-to-day -day lives? I, I feel that I learned a lot today about AI and the digital world, crypto. So I, I do see a revolving theme and maybe to kind of end things off is in a lot of your examples, you related things to Drake quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And you also claim to be the number one Drake fan. I mean, like Spotify reps said I was, I was 0.05%, but like, I think I'm, I'm number one. You think you're number one? I don't think it goes lower than 0.05%. What's, what's this fascination and love with Drake? I think if I'm, if I'm actually going to answer this question, like <laughs> legitimately, I think Drake, if you were only going to listen to one artist for the rest of your life, I think you would be hard pressed not to answer Drake because no matter what type of music you like, there is a Drake song for it. You, arguably, there's a Drake album for it, right? He sings, he raps, there's you know, hardcore hip hop, there's Afro beats, there's like dance music, there's R&B. Like Drake's discography is the most diverse, I would argue, of any artist active today. I'm waiting for Drake to drop a hard rock or a country album. So until he does that, then you can say. I think, I think we'll get there. We'll get, we'll think, get on think, the way. I think a Drake, Drake Morgan Wallen collab coming <laughs> soon. <laughs> Probably. Drake Morgan Wallen. And then another one, a lot of people, have you heard of this group called Baby Metal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Drake baby Drake metal. Baby metal? Oh. Like I am I am envisioning in the future there's gonna be a Drake baby metal collab. All right, we'll see. I'm envisioning I'll, it. I'll but, quote you on it. All right. Thank yeah. you, Zane. Appreciate you. Yeah. Thank you for having me on.